All patients with sepsis need a central line placement and CVP measurement. Nope, CVP is useless, random number generator, especially after the first six hours. Okay, then I'm going to use bedside ultrasound. Nope, static IVC measurement is just as useless as CVP. All right, then I can do a passive leg raise. No, that's too hard to do in all your septic patients. Then I will measure stroke volume variation. Yeah, but that only works in patients who are not spontaneously breathing, ventilated at 8 to 10 cc's per kg, and not in AFib. Then I can insert a PA catheter. Nope, those have never been shown to improve mortality. Well, at least I can draw an SCVO2 and start dobutamine if needed. Nope, SCVO2s are meaningless as well. So, what am I supposed to do? Dr. Case, can you summarize what we're talking about in this episode? In our healthcare system, sepsis is the number one killer of our patients. Uh, We have been working on sepsis care now for over a decade. And when we initially started, we had mortality rates for that patient population that were running in the 50% range. And today it's under 20% across our healthcare system. It's clear that everybody's working hard to try to clarify what the best approach is to care for these patients and improve their outcomes, balancing the art of medicine against the science of healthcare delivery. I think it's a really great place to start. And this episode is going to focus on the six-hour bundle. It's really clear. No one is questioning the three-hour bundle. Everyone's on board with the 30 cc's per kg, blood cultures, lactate, broad-spectrum antibiotics. So I think what we really want to focus on in this episode is the six-hour bundle. I would throw out there, though, when you say no one is concerned about the three-hour bundle, uh, that isn't entirely true. Uh, There are some people who still push back on antibiotics, Uh, And so Mm -hmm. I think that highlights a lot of us who spend a lot of time working on performance improvement and quality initiatives believe that variation reduction and standardization of care saves lives when applied to populations of patients. So we're going to read you some headlines from the online medical community that have come out of the last couple years around sepsis. Uh, and, and see what your thoughts are. So, after Process Promise and Arise came, a very popular blog posted this headline. Are traditional protocols for goal-directed therapy for sepsis dead? They then followed up with the following headline. Surviving sepsis says early goal-directed therapy not needed in all patients for septic shock. And a couple months later, followed up with the following headline. Life after sepsis protocols. What now? You decide. So those are the kind of articles that we're seeing all the time in the online medical community. All, all really good thoughts. How does that translate into running a, a program? We have been working to have a thoughtful review of the existing literature, deconstruct the evidence base, and then meet and talk with expert and leaders across the country to try to get guidance about how to change our current model of septic care across our seven hospital platform. We have had early adopters already moving towards doing care that they feel is most in alignment with the current publication literature base. What I find when people talk about early goal-directed therapy, they're usually meaning the CVPS, CVO2-directed therapy from the Rivers Protocol. And there's obviously people who do not feel that that should be done any longer. But I find a lot of those clinicians are choosing to not do that, but they are not putting in place the practices that are recommended to be used in the absence of that. It's all fine and well to knock early goal-directed therapy. 
it's all fine and well to abandon early goal-directed therapy to some extent, but you can't do that without replacing it with something else, specifically uh, some of the CMS mandates. Correct. CMS has recommended in the most recent recommendations that you do a focused physical exam or two of the following CVP and SCVO2 monitoring or bedside cardiovascular ultrasound or passive leg raising. And so you have to do two of those four. And uh, right now that's up to the provider to do. Uh, I think to those clinicians who wish to step away from CVP and SCVO2 testing, I would like to see the rigor with which they argue their points of the reasons for doing that matched with a passion for coming to reevaluate the patient to guide volume resuscitative strategies. Summarize what the committee's plan is going forward for sepsis in light of the new guidelines. Once SEP3 came out proposing the removal of severe sepsis and moving to the methodology of sepsis and septic shock, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign publications align with that terminology. Mm -hmm. They do not reference severe sepsis anywhere in their documents. And so now I think you have pretty good alignment that there's sepsis and septic shock from those parent organizations. CMS, however, has not taken that up. And we see insurance company third-party payers declining payment to providers and hospitals if they're using the proposed terminology and not the current terminology. So we can still write severe sepsis in a note. You wouldn't recommend anyone. You recommend people to know the new definitions but not necessarily adopt them in their day-to-day practice right now. Which is very challenging when you talk about an organization like ours that's trying to communicate across seven hospitals current and proposed terminology changes. Mm-hmm. It's also very challenging. We have a lot of new and onboarding advanced practice professionals to teach them the history of sepsis with all the complexities of documentation and requirements around that. You touch on a really interesting concept, and that being, what do we teach the junior trainee who doesn't yet have expertise in managing sepsis? Is there value in teaching early goal-directed therapy to junior trainees, and is there a way to teach people how to manage sepsis without teaching them early goal-directed therapy at all? Anytime that you're currently doing a thing in your healthcare environment, then you, generally speaking, need to teach to that. Our system, we still have providers using central line CVP and SCVO2 testing, and that is not something that is out of alignment with the current guidelines, nor is it out of alignment with CMS. And so some providers in environments that the staffing models do not support, being able to come back and regularly reassess patients for their patients who already have central lines in for presser requirements are choosing CVP and SCVO2 monitoring to continue intact. And due to that, I think it's important to continue teaching that methodology to our team members. In an area that's so controversial, I would question not teaching your team the history of the Rivers Protocol for so many reasons. So our approach has been to teach the team the Rivers Protocol, the history of that, and the controversies around process, promise, and arise, what we all agree with and what we have questions about. 
I would also take a moment to point out Dr. Rivers' concerns about those trials being the majority of those patients at inclusion had SCVO2s that looked very different than those who were in the original Rivers trial. And usual care has changed across the world as it relates to sepsis. What Manny Rivers did back in, uh, in 2001 colored so much of sepsis care today. And so it's hard to separate what has now become usual care and what used to be early goal-directed therapy. Definitely the lactates are higher in the Rivers trial. The SCVO2 is lower. The mortality rates are much better, 18 to 21% versus 30 to 40%. And so the question becomes, and it's you don't we don't know the answer to this, you presume sepsis care has gotten tremendously better since Rivers' time in 2001 to 2014. But the other question that always kind of came up around the Rivers trial being a single-center trial in, in downtown Detroit was, was his patient population sicker than most, and probably a little bit of both showing, bearing out in the difference in the numbers there. The commentary of, is usual care in your environment similar to usual care in process promise and arise? And if the answer to that is yes, if you have early detection, early antibiotic and volume resuscitation, and relatively normal SCVO2s in your patient population, then those circumstances are what was executed in that patient population. But if you're practicing in an environment that has a much higher mortality, a lower appreciation for early antibiotics and volume resuscitation, abnormal SCVO2s in a higher population of patients, there are some that still question whether or not there's benefit of a more goal-directed approach in that population of patients. There's no doubt that that trial and the subsequent surviving sepsis campaign has clearly reduced mortality in the country, as you can just see borne out in the new trials and our own sepsis mortality data. Where I think this gets really interesting, though, is just how, why did that occur? Is it more just because he put an emphasis on sepsis that was never there before and put it up at the same level as MI and stroke? Now we have sepsis coordinator and a sepsis team and a code sepsis team at every hospital. Would we have had that in 1999? I don't know the answer to it if it's his regimented physiologic-centric metrics or is it just the light he shined on sepsis care and coming back and looking at your patient. And certainly the final conclusion of essentially recognize it early, give antibiotics, fluids, vasopressors if needed, and monitor attentively, frequently reassess, is the bottom line of what we need to do for every patient with sepsis. I want to come back to one of the points you make because I think it's really important. You can run early goal-directed therapy, and you can run it well, and according to Process Promise Arise, you can get the same mortality rates. However, the point you brought up, I think, is really great. We have a lot of people that want to detract from that, and that's fine. If you don't want to run it, that's fine. But what are you going to do? And I think that's a really hard question to answer. If you were someone who didn't want to run Rivers Protocol, what do you think you would reach for as far as assessment? When inexperienced providers asked me that question historically, we had clear guidance to provide them of what to do. And in the absence of that, we're back to the question that has plagued critical care for a long time. How do you assess the volume status of the patient? 
how do you know that if you're going to give volume that there will be a concordant improvement in their cardiac output and their tissue perfusion? And we are at a place again where it's unclear what is the best approach to use in that patient. Yeah, we, uh, definitely we don't have the answer to that right now. We've got a lot of options, bedside ultrasound, flow track, non-invasive stuff, but, but no clear answers. I think it's accurate to say most authorities on the matter would say there has not been any trial data that would suggest superiority of one of those approaches over the other. So what I would say is if you're a clinician, uh, the right answer there is an individualized one. The wrong answer would be not to come and evaluate the patient at all. Let's do a couple quick hitters. So I'm just going to ask you a couple what you would do in this situation and you let me know. So you're you're running your kind of usual care, maybe a little bit of early goal, maybe a little bit of whatever you want, and uh, you're drawing SCVO2. Let's say it's really low, it's 50, and the patient's hemoglobin is 8. What are you going to do? If you're a believer in SCVO2s and you have a low one, I think most programs have adopted not transfusing hemoglobins greater than 7 unless there's something clinically going on that makes the provider worry that they need additional hemoglobin, such as an active ongoing GI bleeder where you have questions about the accuracy of that hemoglobin of 8. And they just vomited a liter of blood right in front of you, for example? In most programs, if you're using SCVO2s and they're 50%, your hemoglobin is 8, then the question of inotropic therapy would come up. And historically, we would have added inotropic therapy to see if we get a concordant rise in our SCVO2. Current state, we would probably view that as, again, up to the discretion of the provider. I definitely would not add dobutamine, see no change in my SCVO2, and continue dobutamine therapy. If I added dobutamine therapy and I saw an SCVO2 rise, that also had clinical improvement linked to it. So we saw a trend down in our lactate and presser requirements perhaps decrease. Uh, then I would put more credence in that the dobutamine was adding value in that patient. Yeah, I think that's a good point. My question was going to be, should we be using dobutamine at all anymore? I think that's a good patient population you should consider using it. I think these types of questions also highlight around the country we have different providers with different knowledge bases caring for this patient population. If that patient is in an intensive care unit with an intensivist who has good ultrasound skills and the nurse calls with an SCVO2 of 50, that provider goes to the bedside, does an ultrasound assessment, gets a feel that their left ventricular function is down, their volume is good, and they're not bleeding from any site and chooses to introduce inotropic therapy, sees a decrease in their lactate, an improvement in their urine output, and a decrease in their presser requirement, uh, that I think is what many experts would love to see, a global assessment by a knowledgeable provider who's integrating multiple points of hemodynamic assessment to drive decision-making for the patient. This idea that we're going to have an expert taking care of every patient, being able to real-time make clinical decisions based on a wealth of knowledge and experience, we see a lot of vulnerability in that thought model as the prevailing model for what the average septic patient gets across the country. 
And so when you think about the majority of the nation, of which 70% of hospitals do not have intensivists, falling back to the historical guidelines of titration for inotropic and blood therapy, uh, that's where some would say that did not worsen outcomes in process promise and arise. It afforded the same outcomes, and so you could continue that approach in that population. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. If you have the skills, bring your bedside ultrasound to that patient. Maybe consider flow track. If you don't, you can kind of default to running early goal-directed therapy. The next question that comes up a lot is about fluid resuscitation beyond the six-hour period. A lot of people are saying that patients with sepsis, number one, are not necessarily volume deplete, though fluid resuscitation is important, and that patients beyond the six-hour period are no longer likely to be volume responsive. So would you treat a CVP of six in a patient at, say, hour 12? There is not a sufficient evidence base on that topic to clearly say that you have an evidence-based best practice approach to deploy there. In the absence of that, I have always defaulted to expert opinion. The majority of expert opinion that I have sought on that recommended continuing with your resuscitative strategies beyond the six hours until those shock states, SCVO2s and lactates had normalized. With the new publications, that has cast doubt on that approach. What one would conclude from the majority of the work that's been done goes back to having the clinician come back to the bedside and reassess the volume resuscitation strategy. How much of an increased patient load burden would that add to your yeah. ICU providers? If you're replacing continuous CVP and SCVO2 monitoring with frequent reassessment of your septic patients, then the question becomes, how many septic patients do you have in your ICU? How many staff do you have to execute that reassessment period? And it has implications on your staffing models, how you deliver that type of frequent reassessment. So in short, there's very limited data to inform that decision, especially beyond the six-hour period. But I think we're touching on the theme of this episode, which is basically you can run early goal-directed therapy or you can frequently reassess, get more data, and do something. I feel with the current evidence base out there, the majority of programs no longer mandate CVP and SCVO2 monitoring in their patient population, leaving it now to the discretion of the physicians and the APPs to formulate what the best resuscitation strategy is in their patient population. But with that new authority comes the responsibility for those providers to come back and reassess those patients. Yeah. With great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> right. I just quote Spider-Man. <laughs> yes, I did. I think Spider-Man would run early goal. One of the asks from nurses physicians in the ER, ICU, and IMS programs has been that they want more easy button to the process. The Rivers protocol was the easy button, and now parts of that have been dismantled. And so we're trying now to figure out how to give simple, straightforward guidance to those without expert knowledge level against the desire of those with expert knowledge level to be more free to execute the art of medicine. 
Yeah, I think that's something that we've seen a little bit anecdotally in providers, especially when they're unsure of what to do without an easy button. They end up kind of indecisive and, and maybe not as aggressive as they, w- they would have been under Rivers. They would just drop the central line, started CBPS, CVO2 monitoring. Do you think in many ways early goal-directed therapy is to sepsis what ACLS is to cardiopulmonary resuscitation in that it's giving guidance to non-experts to take care of these patients, or does it go beyond that? A framework to start with from which you could build upon. One of the benefits of the surviving sepsis campaign and the early goal-directed therapy protocols was it equipped non content matter experts with a framework of how to deliver care in a bundled manner that demonstrated improved outcomes when implemented. And when you have a content matter expert in the environment, that there was never an intention to limit the ability of that content matter expert to tailor the care to the individual patient. Because of we see such a high volume of sepsis patients, anytime our junior trainees would encounter a hypotensive patient, the easy button just became, let's give them some fluid, let's give them 500 cc's, let's give them a liter. Uh, What do you think about that? I think what we worry about is sometimes misidentifying cardiogenic shock. Or or even some other form of shock. I was was called on a, a patient who was thought to be sepsis. The story was convincing, put a probe on the chest and saw massive RV dilation. The patient had a massive PE to which I think 30 cc's per kg might be detrimental. How how do we tease all of that apart in these patients who may be septic or maybe not? As ultrasound becomes more prevalent in ICUs, that is helping prevent the scenario that you described. And so I like that ability among our ICU teams to help detect the patients that you just described. Having said that, though, those are the minority of cases. We still see across our system patients who are under-resuscitated and whose biggest opportunity in terms of adherence to the three-hour bundle element is appropriate volume resuscitation. And so clinicians frequently will focus on the outliers and miss the largest population of patients. If, we, if I knew today that we were adherent as well as we could be with appropriate volume resuscitation in our septic patients, I'm confident that we would save far more lives with that approach. So this dives into the next question of should we be volume restrictive volume liberal, or somehow aim for this mythical middle ground? Whenever I'm asked that question, I also point out that 30 cc's per kg on the initial volume resuscitation, it is difficult to find patients that have been harmed by that approach. We do not see that happening. And if you look at historically patients that we feel were grossly volume overloaded, it was never the initial 30 cc's per kg that created that. It was the subsequent 10 to 20 liters of fluid positivity that they had over the next 48 to 72 hours, which again, if you ask the average provider, that is an indication that those clinicians are not adequately assessing where they are on the volume resuscitation curves for those patients. 
I mean, they need frequent reassessment, right? If you're not going to be targeting a CVP or some other form of goal-directed volume resuscitation, you need to at least go back to the bedside so they don't automatically get that much fluid positivity. What about patients with end-stage renal disease or heart failure? Do we need to be giving these patients fluid as well? Remember, in all the major sepsis trials, end-stage renal disease and heart failure patients were included in those trials. So that patient population gets 30 cc's per kg up front, just like any septic shock without those disease comorbidities present. That's not to say that if you have a patient in front of you who's clearly volume overloaded, that you should mindlessly administer volume resuscitation to them. That's where we ask our providers to go one step further, come to the bedside, assess the patient, and take a global assessment of their volume status. But we find the majority of the time when that occurs that those patients are given the 30 cc's per kg because it's the conclusion from the multidisciplinary team that the patient needs that volume resuscitation strategy. Do you think in general, should we be starting vasopressors earlier than we do? A lot of people talk about this venoconstrictive response and augmenting preload uh, with pressors instead of just with fluid. Would, Would you prefer waiting to see how their blood pressure does with just fluid or would you want to give pressors earlier? Certainly a challenging clinical question at the moment of care. In general, if any provider feels that without early presser addition, the patient may progress to cardiovascular collapse and cardiac arrest, then we clearly should be initiating aggressive presser support in that situation. How low is too low becomes part of the question there. My own approach is I start fluids and pressors pretty simultaneously in the profoundly shocky patient because I know once you lose a patient into a cardiac arrest rhythm, the outcomes for that patient are much more dismal than if you can avert them entering into a cardiopulmonary arrest scenario. So you're treating a low map as an emergency, starting pressors, concomitant with your fluid resuscitation, weaning them if you can, but you're not waiting to see if to see if that blood pressure comes up with just fluid. Depending on how low that pressure is, I agree with your commentary though, a severely low MAP is an emergent situation. And being aggressive with getting that to uh, more normal value is the approach. And the surviving sepsis campaign recommendation of a MAP of 65 is something that I adhere to in my clinical practice. If that profoundly shocky patient needs pressors right now, that you're safe to start your presser peripherally while you're gearing up to do your central line and resuscitating the patient. I agree with that. The recent publications showing that there is a safe way to deliver low-dose peripheral pressors has enabled those of us who are responding to the patient with new shock that we have a little time to try pressors and volume resuscitation prior to central line placement. And we are seeing that we have some patients that are able to be volume resuscitated, come off pressors, and then not need central line placement. Mm -hmm. If you're choosing to do that, I would adhere to the methods used in those publications, Mm -hmm. not using small veins, frequently reassessing the sites, having reversal agents on hand and being knowledgeable about their utilization. So what's the official ask for our sepsis teams? Once a patient with a severe infection is identified as having organ dysfunction, a best practice alert is fired in our Epic-based EMR system. 
When that occurs, a STAT team member is dispatched to the bedside of the patient who reaches out to one of our critical care team members when on the wards. That team, we ask, assess the patient, confirm the diagnosis of sepsis is present, and if so, we want them to place a disease state-specific order set that matches up best practice care for that patient. Make sure they deliver antibiotics, preferably within one hour of time zero, aggressive volume resuscitation initiating with 30 cc's per kg, lactate and blood culture checks, and then thoughtful reassessment to further guide their volume resuscitation strategies. I encourage anybody who's looking to be inspired and see high-performance teaming to look into your environment and find your sepsis teams because usually that's some of your most passionate care providers who are really dedicated to balancing the art of medicine against the science of healthcare delivery. That's it for our sepsis smackdown. I suppose that you no longer have to run early goal-directed therapy, but that doesn't mean that you can't do anything. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't do anything. Please do something for your septic patients. If you're not going to run early goal, then you have to be really familiar with sepsis 3.0, the new guidelines, point-of-care ultrasound, the CMS core measures, and what you need to do to frequently reassess the volume status of your patient. Hope that was helpful for you. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.